welcome everybody to the Regeneration Podcast. It's another day and another uh, another week on the farm for Mr. Michael Martin, who before his uh, maple sugaring process. How's it going, my friend? Well, we're collecting as much sap as we can this week and next week probably will be it, and then the first week of March we'll boil it down to syrup. Okay, and we'll be lucky to get, get a gallon. What? Yeah, and you're saying the the proportion, a lot of people, I was shocked. I've tapped one maple tree in my backyard just drinking the water. So it feels like spring. But give people who don't know the, the percentages there. How many gallons of sap? Well, it depends on the trees. Uh, hard okay. maples are have higher sugar content and soft maples, which is mostly what we have, have have a lower sugar content. But a friend of mine lives maybe half an hour away from here. He they they're they're serious about this. I mean, they're much more serious than we are. And they just boiled down i think 140 gallons 130 gallons and it made three and a half gallons of syrup wow yep. so you, have to, you have to love it, your maple yeah. syrup to make it worth it yeah and our, our our guest this morning i'm sure is no complete foreigner to maple syrup and uh things that come from the land he's a name a very well known to many um i've been familiar with this name for a long time uh, our listeners know I do a lot of writing for Front Porch Republic, and our guest this morning is going to be next year Front Porch Republic Convention's kind of keynote speaker. I uh, had a recent article in First Things. His conversion story is, is in the pages of First Things. So much more. Our guest, uh, as you see on YouTube, is Paul Kingsnorth. Paul Kingsnorth um, has done so much work. I, I love his biography, um, and I am, you know, you're Oxford educated, um, really involved in kind of, you know, radical in the best way, radical, that's going to be a, a, a word of applause here, environmentalism, um, you know, modern history major, uh, has written the novels, you know, that most many people are familiar with, The Wake, The Beast, and Alexandria, which are taking three different periods, you know, far back, modern, and the future in, uh, in the same place. Um, and his blog, The Abbey of Misrule, where he's set up Oh, maybe 19 months ago, I think you'd say, Paul. But, you know, the central concept there, which is going to be the focus of today, is going to be the machine, the machine. And uh, Michael and I talk about that a lot under different names, the beehive. A guest we'll have next week, Guido Preparata, will talk about the techno structure. And uh, I want you to weave into this first kind of theme, Paul, if you can, a little bit of your bio, uh, as much as is relevant and as much as you want to share. And we certainly want to plug your writings for sure. The Abbey of Misrule. Substack, it's a it's a must-have. Uh, as well as Michael and I were talking, we talked about last week about AI, and I'd mentioned my friend, uh, like Father Ed Dillon, who's the brightest guy I know, and uh, people are always going up to him and saying, you know, what are you reading, Father Ed? And he says, you know, Agatha Christie and the complete nonsense poems of Lewis Carroll, and the role of like nonsense poems as being so human. This guy, Father Ed, is the freest man I know, and uh, there's a couple of angles that I'd like to get at, but. Uh, Michael was saying that he, and I'll, I'll ask you, Michael, to give us a brief synopsis of what happened. He told me before you signed on, he put what poem into what program? Tell us, Michael. Well, well, last week on the show, we were speculating about, uh, you know, uh, what we talked about, remember, Sarah Height, we, we interviewed earlier, uh, had experiences with the Google Translate bots that they started having conversations with her that had nothing to do with what she was inputting into the translation. And she was kind of freaked out, as you can imagine, about what it might be and whether the AI was becoming at least uh, appearing to be sentient. 
So I decided, we talked last week and I said, you know, we, we have to find a way to subvert that, you know, because we, we input these things on the internet, whether it's, you know, a search term and Google finishes the search term for you or on your phone or whatever, and it tries to finish it. So it, it's reading your mind in a way, or at least in trying to. Um, so I decided, you know, what would happen if you input Jabberwocky into a Google Translate? which I did this morning, finally, after talking about it. I was talking about it with students this week. And it's kind of funny. So I, I just went to Google, which I don't use as a search engine. And uh, I found, found Translate. And I input the first stanza of Jabberwocky by Lewis Carroll, which goes, "'Twas brillig in the slithy toves, did gyre and gimbal in the wave, all mimsy where the borough goes, and the momraths outgrave." And uh, which is nonsense. Uh, and here's what, so I put it in and just happened to have German and English is the, is the first things to translate. And so I translated into German and then reverse translated it back into English. And here's what it came up with. It was brilliant in the slippery toves spinning and gimbling in the honeycomb. All the mimsy were the borrow goves and the mother surpasses. <laughs> That's not too bad. The mother surpasses. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's actually quite a good translation, isn't it? <laughs> disturbingly, the mother surpasses. Oh, disturbingly good. I would have never guessed that. I kind of like it. The mother surpasses what? And who is the mother? That's quite interesting, isn't it? Well, they they probably yeah. you know have me pegged as a sociologist on Google Translate, so they're telling me what I want to hear. Mm. Yeah. So so again, Paul, tell us uh you know uh on the machine, um let's get into like. Uh, AI. So I'll, I'll seed you with one more thing is, you know, that this machine, as I think about it, the, the beehive, uh, you know, you're a recent, it's a very public convert to, you know, Romanian Orthodox Christianity. And um, something else I saw was um, an interview with you at Mirror Orthodoxy. And it was a wonderful interview. And um, they were talking about, you know, that novel everybody's reading. And forgive me for the, you know, the last name pronunciation, Lazarus by Eugene Volkazen. Um, but how it, it might be impossible in our time to create an image of a holy fool um, in modern times so that the author had to do it in the Middle Ages. And uh, huh. I don't know, like I, I thought of your work and you know, I think there's a huge role for comedy in our time. And I think, and I'll say later, I think I've seen some great portrayals of a holy fool with an author we both have in common. Um, but uh, talk about AI, a little bit of uh, you know, humor and so forth. You know, uh, do you think well, this uh go ahead well uh hmm, ai is interesting isn't it because there's a lot of things you could say about it it's i mean the the thing that's interesting about it maybe is that in a way it's not a thing at all it's just uh it's, it's an algorithm which collects vast amounts of data all of which has come from actual humans and then it tries to imitate a human and it can now imitate a human so well that it sounds like a human and so we're all getting freaked out by it and wondering if it's going to become sentient um if you're a Christian, you'd know that things can't become sentient unless they're created. So it's not going to become sentient, um, but it could look like it is. And the interesting thing about, I mean, I was, I was reading something about this the other day and I can't remember the author, but they were suggesting that actually the age of AI might well signify the death of culture for the simple reason that what it, all it can do is reproduce things that have already been created. So all an AI, if an AI writes a novel, all it will be, all it will do is draw on every other novel that it's, that it's had inputted into itself. Right. and spout something out and the the thing it can spout out is now so sophisticated that in some cases anyway it can pass for an actual human doing a thing 
but obviously it doesn't have any creative soul it doesn't have a soul it's, it's not a thing it's just a machine it's a load of ones and zeros so in one sense it's terrifying because you know it can write our exam papers for us and make all the novelists redundant in another sense it's just a big replication machine and so if it can if we if we start producing everything or, or at least a lot of significant things in the culture with this kind of machinery what we're doing is kind of eating ourselves we're cannibalizing our previous culture but we're not creating anything new and the ai is never going to be able to create anything new it's almost a metaphor for where we're going with with the age of transhumanism i mean this 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 phrase the machine that i use is not mine it, like all of my work, it's stolen from better authors already um, who've already used it. Um, George Orwell used to use it. D.H. Lawrence used to use it. R.S. Thomas used to use it. It's a it's a reference to this giant agglomeration of technology that's rising around us and creating um, a society which is effectively now being created where we all feel like we're powerless cogs. We don't really control things anymore. It's the age of technology rather than the age of organism. But it's been going on for a long time. One of the essays I wrote in my series was um looked into lewis mumford's great book the age of um uh, sorry the myth of the machine and it's a huge book in two volumes and i only read the first one mumford talks about this thing he calls the mega machine and he talks about it quite rightly i think as actually a manifestation of something that's really deep within people it's very very ancient and the first example of a machine society that he uses is ancient egypt mm -hmm. which he calls a machine made of human parts and the human parts are mainly slaves who build the pyramids so you have this vast centralized system that exists um, to effectively build a pyramid for a few people to be deified in, which requires a vast slave army to do it. But it creates a mechanism so sophisticated that it looks like a machine that keeps popping up, rising and falling, rising and falling throughout history, throughout empires. What's happened in modernity is we have discovered fossil fuels. So we don't need the slaves anymore. There are still plenty of them around, but we've got coal now. We've got oil now. We've allowed... Uh, and, and that has allowed us in the age of the industrial revolution, the scientific revolution, the enlightenment, which separates us from our past, tells us that religion is dead and kings are dead and, and, and tradition is dead and we're a new egalitarian culture now. We move into this quite revolutionary moment where we're able to create incredibly sophisticated machinery. But all it does, in my view, is allow us to try again to do what we were doing in the Garden of Eden. Right, which is rebelling against God and making ourselves gods. Mm -hmm. And that's the story. Um, there's, a, there's an interesting image that Mumford uses when he talks about ancient Egypt and compares it to the modern world. He says you could compare a pyramid to a space rocket because both of these things use a huge amount of resources to, to take a favoured few to heaven. It's quite interesting. It's a technological way of saving heaven. Yeah. So we've got this really old story. <laughs> you can see it in Christian terms by looking at the book of Genesis, where here we are, we're in a garden, we're walking with God, we're walking with everything else that lives. We're in communion with creation and creator. And all we have to do is not eat the fruit of the tree because the fruit of the tree gives us the knowledge of separation. And off we do, off we go, we do that. We get persuaded to do that um, by the little snake within us and, and, and outside us. And we decide that we can do better than God. And so we fall out of the garden and we fall into agriculture and cities and murder and the Tower of Babel and the rest of it. Off we go through the human journey, but it's always a journey of rebellion against God. And there are so many other stories from the story of Prometheus to the story of, well, who knows the story of Icarus. There are so many indigenous stories, so many stories in other religions which tell the same sort of tale, actually, of the human desire to be gods, the human desire to control, the human desire to create, to live forever and to control the world. 
Um, and that's what we do. And to my mind, the machine, the machine that we're currently living in, which is aiming directly at transhumanism, it's aiming directly at a project of, of effectively <laughs> making us immortal, creating new beings, creating new, creating new species to replace us, all of this vainglorious talk that we get. It's a very, very old story that's powered by very new technology. That's the way I see it. So it's it's a particular human desire, but we have the power and the ability now to do things with it that we couldn't do before. Amen. Now, and, now let me ask you this. I think this is important. I've, I, I've been teaching this week uh, Ivan Illich and Barry Sanders' book, ABC, which is about literacy and development of language and, and things like this. And, you know, as a poet, and, and Paul's a poet, we're all writers. Uh, the place this seems to be taking play, uh, be happening, is in the realm of language itself, right? As we can see, and and I think this ex example I use with Jabberwocky is kind of funny, but it's also not kind of funny because um, the the tendency of the 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 internet and social media and things like this is to kind of homogenize language, right? It kind of compresses language into just a certain uh, register. And um, in, so in Illich's book, he talks about the Latin that was spoken rather than written during uh, late antiquity and as the, as the Romance languages were developing, right? Which was never written down. I mean, the, the Latin we read and whether it's Augustine or Cicero, that is a different Latin than the Latin people were speaking, which was never recorded. But the difference between then and now is all of our language is recorded. You know, it's uh, it's digitized. <laughs> it's turned into an algorithm, right? So, uh, so I wonder, what do you think, Paul? What's the, what's the role of language, or what's the what's the mission of of language of the of the language of the poet in particular? in the face yeah, of this. It's a really good question. I wrote a book a few years ago called Savage Gods, um, which was published in the States as well as Britain. And it was actually, a, it was kind of a bit of a crisis memoir. It was a crisis I was having as a writer with writing. It actually turned out to be a spiritual crisis as well. It turned out to be a prelude to me becoming a Christian, which wasn't part of the plan. and wasn't what I was <laughs> expecting when I wrote that Never book, but that was what happened. There you go, I was surprised. But um, but I wrote this entire book, which is um, exactly about this this question which is pertinent to writers especially but to everyone really what point does a language become what point what, what at what point does written language especially become a, a wall rather than a window does it become something that blocks you from the world from the, the kind of the sentient reality of life rather than something that allows you into it and i think it's particularly true of written language like you say the jump from oral language to written language is so significant suddenly we can firstly we can spread the stories far more widely but suddenly we've got this homogenization going on this homogenization of spelling and grammar and all of the things yeah. that you and you have the separate languages and, and they all become homogenized and local languages become homogenized into a national language very often something that happened here in ireland particularly and in other countries too and then when you get to the digital um the digital world you get a different thing i was having a correspondence just recently with a former computer programmer who'd managed to escape his fate and he was saying what you have to remember about digital languages really it's just a bunch of ones and zeros the only thing that computers are ever doing is bouncing ones and zeros off each other and so if you spend a lot of time programming 
that starts to rework your mind and the way that you see the world. And if you spend a lot of time on computers, which almost all of us do now, because it's how we have to live, then your world is being subtly conditioned by a machine that can only see in ones and zeros. Okay, just as I mean, you could argue, and I'm a writer, but I'd still argue it that that reading written language is is homogenizing you in a way that oral language wouldn't have done. Right. So all of these things are kind of this this creep towards a homogenized language, which now, as you say, can also be monitored and scooped up and turned into an algorithm which can be used to create a fake human which will then tell you jokes um so it's yeah it, we're, we're we're scooped into this into this language machine as well and the way to rebel against that obviously is to tell more oral stories and and to make up words and nonsense poems like like lewis carroll that the machine can't cope with but it's it is a, it is difficult not to see it as this this progression away from reality from a real relationship with nature and towards this right. artificial world that we you know humans love creating artificial worlds i'm a novelist i like creating artificial worlds as well but that's what we do you know at least to a degree the, yeah, the most maybe the most apocalyptic <clears throat> thing you've said in your writings to me paul is uh uh regarding again humor you said soon your kids will be taught by ai and laugh at its jokes knowing that you're a dad i'm a dad michael's a dad you mm -hmm. know knowing again that like our children's sense of humor you know when, when you talk about the alphabet you know other people write how it just hypertrophied the left brain we're all mm. suffering under that and right. um that when when these ones and zeros when that gets substituted for humor and our children laugh you know that they've they've worked on a part of the brain so much that all the humor is not this kind of like witty jabberwocky stuff but mm. this kind of sardonic humor sardonic i think is the right word um, again, it was through the lens of you being a dad and kids and them laughing at that joke. That was mm. the only thing in your writing. A lot of it's apocalyptic that just kind of put chills in my spine. Yeah, yeah, mine okay. too. I mean, that's one of the reasons we don't give smartphones to our children. Um, but, you know, you can't avoid the world. You can't avoid the world. And this is the thing. It's um, we are going into this point now where it's really this is why so many people are going mad. I think it's one of the reasons our culture is going crazy. And, and splitting apart and there seems to be so much unreality about and it's difficult even to get a grip on what the hell's going on that's certainly what i feel um it's partly because we are going to increasingly be able to not tell the difference between what's real and what's invented i mean things like deep fakes now are getting to the point where you know you could easily in a few years create a deep fake of me saying anything anything you wanted to if you like mm -hmm. that'll be possible um, and then you've got AIs that can write essays and the rest of it, and that will very, very quickly accelerate as well. It's going to be very, very hard in all sorts of areas, from plastic surgery to, to deep fake TV, to work mm -hmm. out what the hell is going on. And the more and more people live on the internet, the more and more people just divorce from reality. And so we get to the point now where everybody's calling everybody else a conspiracy theorist, because nobody, <laughs> nobody can work out what the hell is going on, you know? Right. And it, it's we're getting to that point. And I think actually that the COVID pandemic really supercharged that because what you did then was you introduced, especially with the vaccine, you introduced these vaccines into which are absolutely guaranteed to divide society down the middle because they're so new. By design, by design. By, yeah. yeah, well, yeah, I mean, that, I think something's going on that we can't put our finger on, but it, things haven't gone back together since then, you know? Right. So it's yeah i mean it's it's impossible to agree and one of the reasons it's impossible to agree is not just an old-fashioned political disagreement about something it's because we can't agree on the nature of reality so that's the real that's the thing i worry about with my children actually 
-hmm. is really having to just bring them up to understand what reality actually is. Yeah, I you know I'm I'm still stuck on when you you said your your children laugh at your jokes. So uh, how does that happen? My kids don't. <laughs> right. laugh at their jokes Sometimes they're still they're, they're, they're growing out of it. They're growing out but, of it very fast. <laughs> yeah, my kids. I, I get the eye roll. I have a lot of teenagers in the house. So, mm. uh, um, well, that's fun. I I enjoy winding my teenagers up. It's good. One thing I often tell students, um, and this is something I've started noticing. Uh, under the Obama administration, I think. And it's that whoever rules, whoever rules the dictionary rules the world, right? And we've seen, uh, and I asked the students just yesterday, I said, said, can you think of any words that don't, are, are taken to mean things now that they didn't mean, you know, 10 or 15 years ago? And they were afraid to say, <laughs> even though they all yeah, knew, yeah. how about, male and female how about man and woman are those how about literally literally how about which literally? now means not how, literally how about community mm -hmm. right i mean what is what is a community i don't know the, the the feminist community the gay community the cigar smoking community i've actually seen that one in print before uh, <laughs> that's, but all that's these words that with that 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 the in a way the dictionary or language is hijacked for political purposes or for and not just political purposes for transhumanist purposes i would say right mm -hmm. that yeah, change, I mean, because you change that it changes the reality of what's around you and people it's bizarre pretend that they've always believed in this <laughs> this is all they've, they've always thought and we know it's not how they've always thought no well language is power isn't it language yeah. is power so you define i mean this is George Orwell's famous claim in 1984, language is power. If you can control the things that people say, you can control the things that they think, or at least the things that they know they're allowed to think. Right. And every every regime has all every totalitarian regime anyway has always done that. And certainly there's an aspect of that going on now. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I mean, things are being language is being rewritten. I mean, it's almost it sometimes seems every week some new way of describing something is dropped down upon us from the oh, sky and nobody nobody seems to know where it's coming from i don't know who's writing these things i don't know which committee is deciding what we should say about x y and z <laughs> but somehow we all know what we're supposed to say and people just say what they're supposed to say because they just want to get on and they don't want to get into trouble they want to be mobbed on the internet so so off you go so absolutely that's true and the, and the most the most disturbing thing about that as i said is you can never quite get a grip on where it's coming from that's that it's very nebulous it's not as if the government issues an edict like they might do in china or something and says you all have to say this and you know you'd better say it because they've got a secret service it's just like it's it, yeah. it it floats out through the internet and suddenly we all know we have to use this word and not that word right mm -hmm. and, and, and it's, yeah absolutely. It's all part of that pervasive sense of unreality i think where where people are just afraid to speak frankly as well people are afraid to say well actually i think this and and you think that so let's have an argument Right. That's become that's become very difficult. And people of our generation grew up with doing that. You know, here's what you think. Here's what I think. Well, let's have a fight about that. Let's have an argument. You say that. I say this. Maybe the argument will get heated. But we're saying what we think. And then we'll you know, see what happens. Whereas now there's, there's a certainly a, a, a much wider fear of people saying what they think because they know what the line is, you know. So for case in point, yesterday, one of the classes I was teaching, I'm teaching this. The class is. Uh, students have to you know write an argument and they have to come up with a proposition i said you know i was giving examples of propositions i said here's one 
So, and how many of you believe in astrology? Because again, of college students, I thought be no one raised their hand. I said, well, how many of you don't believe in astrology? Still nobody raised their hand. So, <laughs> so how many of you have two broken arms and you can't raise your hand? So, you know, why are you guys afraid? Right? Because because they've been conditioned to be afraid. Um, of, well, so they, they weren't, they didn't know what they were thinking But but Paul, I want to, you know, I, I really love your book, uh, Confessions of a Recovering Environmentalist. And so because I read it and, I, and there was so much I thought. I, I have a comrade in arms here because uh, I don't know if you know, we live on a biodynamic farm in Michigan and I was out splitting wood this morning for next year. And I love your chapter about your scythe and, 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 and about your composting toilet, right? Which yeah, is everybody, where, everybody talks to me about this. I'm most famous for my, well, I have one. Toilet. I have one too. So I, I did, I, well, I, I, I bought mine before I read your book. <laughs> but we have we have a yurt out in our woods and we we have an outhouse for that and i bought a composting toilet which i love and i can't wait till the mm -hmm. to the the plumbing in the house breaks down so i can bring so i can move a couple into the house um but i think that what's what you're what you're doing there when you're talking about scything and things like this is because those are the th that's the antidote to all the all the stuff we've been talking about right is being yeah, connected I mean to the real well, it always is, isn't it? And this is, um, I mean, you know, I grew up as an environmentalist, I suppose, in the 90s, reading all of the uh, the sort of classic works by the, I suppose, the guys from the 70s, really, Illich and Schumacher and mm. and the various yeah. kind of um, human scale writers, really, for whom yeah. that was the antidote. Now, back in the 70s, it was a little <clears> bit simpler because you didn't have the internet. So it was actually possible to go to the country and escape, whereas now you can't escape in the country if you've got Wi-Fi. But no. still, you, you can still get further away from that. From the from the kind of chaos of it but yeah i mean the the antidote to the machine is always the the physical it's always your body it's always the land it's always nature it's always you know nature as in human nature and the rest of nature mm -hmm. it's always 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 that engagement with that you don't have to have a piece of land to have an engagement with that even just going outside even just walking in the park even just looking at the stars if you can see the stars is an engagement with that i mean the symbolism of of how so many people now live in cities. The majority of the world's people live in cities. And in most of these giant cities, you can't see the stars. You know, you mm -hmm. can't taste the fresh air and you can't see the stars. And that might sound like a small thing, but it's not a small thing. It's a significant thing that cuts you off from your place in the universe. And obviously, um, the more dependent we can be made on the machine, the better it is for the machine, because we're all supposed to be rolled into this thing and become cogs into it, uh, right. cogs in it and become consumers of it. Um, not not really producers anymore because the machines will be doing that for us, but certainly consumers. So, you know, the rebellion is a simple old one. It's, you know, produce and work and use your body. And as you say, scale things back if you can do it. It's made harder and harder all the time. It's made harder and harder for you not to exist, to, for you to exist without the internet, for example. It's almost impossible to, to bank without it. And when, once they roll out the digital currencies, it will be impossible to go shopping without it and all the rest of it. So this is... This is the logic of the system. You know, no conspiracy theory is required for the logic of the machine to take us in that direction. That's where it's going to go. And that's mm -hmm. where it is going. So, yeah, the the antidote to it is to get away from it as much as you can. No. I think that's easier, easier and easier with other people around you who want to do the same thing. It's very hard to do it on your own or even as a family. You know? um, so I think there's going to be more and more. And there's a lot of conversation about this on my on my website on the Abbey of Misrule at the moment. 
what do we do? What do we do? It's the sort of eternal question. And a lot yeah. of it cycles around this. Okay, how do we create communities that have an alternative way of doing things as much as that's possible? And I think mm -hmm. that's one of the big one of the big questions. Again, it's not a new question. It's not as if people weren't doing this in the 60s, you know, but but still it's it's it gets more and more urgent the harder and harder it is to escape from the kind of network of the thing. Yeah. Now the um staying on the subject of the antidote, you know, that uh we all agree it's kind of going back to the real. You know, that's just a huge theme. Um, I mentioned in correspondence of your friend Frank Mulder's book, you know, the gentleman who'll be on next week, Guido Preparata, he plays with uh, his main thing is perishable currency. And we were speaking over the weekend and he was in Italy trying to get a small community there to launch one off to hear how it went. It's, it's not usually well received. Anyhow, there's also the spiritual antidote, right? So you're going to correct me, but, you know, Michael and I both come from kind of a Roman Catholic background. And we would have our own way of saying it. I'm currently, I lead, I'm a lay person, but I run a, you know, a Roman Catholic parish in my diocese as a lay person. No priest kind of wanted the job. Um, and there's two priests who work as sacramental ministers. And I can only speak for myself. Michael have to speak for himself. But I find myself, um, the, the language I use now, and again, we know that you're a recent convert to Orthodox Christianity. And I was thinking of your friend, Frank Mulder. And it kind of ties into this humor piece is that um, the... The religion, the Roman Catholic religion right now, I think, is dead in the water. Chesterton says it's died and risen five times. And so the language I'm using recently is, you know, we the religion is not the container to hang to to hold the explosive mystery and the freedom of the gospel. It's just not. Um, and that, you know, uh, Illich and so forth, you know, he would talk about um, the gospel. He would talk about how the Beatitudes are becoming scientific, really realizable in our time, but you're never going to see the word like Christianity. You will see the church. Um, for Frank Mulder, he talks about people of the way. He keeps away from the church. And so, you know, even with my, you know, focusing on the gospel, I almost think that these great people in the West, Cervantes, uh, Shakespeare, Rabelais, and so forth, again, this kind of humorous appropriation of the real, you know, this, this antidote, if we can look at the machine with a raised eyebrow, and there's another kind of distinction I want to make, you know, that this role. So, you know, you've kind of joined uh, Romanian Orthodox Christianity. Michael and I have. But whether it's Dorothy Day or, again, going back to the mountainsides and so forth, it's kind of where we are. And, um, you know, uh, kind of respond to that a little bit, you know, and I, I think this we can stay on this for a while. Go ahead. Mm, well, as I said earlier, I sort of hinted at this, Mike. My Christian journey was a bit unexpected. I was on a mm -hmm. spiritual quest, well, probably my whole life, but uh, an obvious spiritual quest from my 40s onwards. I was a Zen Buddhist for quite a while. That seems to take quite a lot of people to Christianity, funnily enough. Um, I was a, I, I, I became a Wiccan very briefly as a kind of wanted, somebody who wanted a nature religion. I was always looking for God. And, and then God came looking for me, as will happen. Um, and I couldn't avoid it. And so I ended up becoming a Christian. Um, and... I believed it to be true because I didn't want it to be true. That was fundamentally what, what was happening <laughs> to me. I wasn't looking, wasn't looking for Christianity. I was, when I became a Buddhist, when I was looking around nature religions and sort of neo-paganism, I was looking for something that suited me. And Christianity came at me and I didn't think it did suit me, which is, as I say, why I thought it must be real, because it, it, I wasn't trying to shape something around myself. I mean, I learned a lot from Buddhism and there's a lot of truth in that, but, but I, I fund fundamentally ended up following following christ and then i had to decide which church to join because there are so many of them um, far more in america than there are in ireland but still amen you know, 
you know, you think, well, what, what is what is the church? Which one is the right one? Which is the real one? And there was a there was a sort of a long story around that. But effectively, the the first Romanian, well, the first Orthodox monastery in Ireland for a thousand years opened up quite near me, and it was run by the Romanian Church. I went along to that. I met the priest. I kept going to the liturgy, and the the Orthodox liturgy is not like anything I've ever seen in a Christian church. Um, it's just it's something of amazing of remarkable power. I've never seen it at a Catholic mass. I've certainly never seen it in the Church of England or a Baptist church or any of the other places I've been. I didn't grow up Christian, but I grew up in an England that was still nominally Christian. So I learned learned about Christianity at school. I knew the Lord's Prayer. I sort of knew the story. I'd been to churches, and none of them really moved me at all. Didn't seem to mean anything at all. But in the liturgy, there's a living presence. There's something really powerful going on, and, uh, and it's even more astonishing when you mm -hmm. think about the fact that I didn't understand the language that most of it was coming out in. Right. Something going on, and there is something going on in the Orthodox Church, and I became a member of the Orthodox Church because I think that it has guarded the old Christian tradition better than anything in the West. Um, I think that the tradition of the, the Desert Fathers and the heart of mystical Christianity is still in the Orthodox monastic tradition. It's still in places like Mount Athos, um, and in the liturgy there's, there's an enormous power. So there is, a, there is a religious container that still works. And one of the reasons I think it still works, I've been thinking about this a lot. Why has Western Christianity gone wrong? And I think one of the reasons it's gone wrong, and I, you know, I come from a country which went through the Reformation and basically destroyed the entire basis of medieval Christianity. So all the monasteries were ripped apart and the proceeds given to the king. The monks and the nuns were sent away. All of the holy wells were destroyed. All of the shrines to the saints were destroyed. We had a Christianity which was entirely embedded in the landscape at the local level from the pilgrimage routes to the shrines to the wells you had monastics praying for the for, for the for the people you had great painted churches and it was all destroyed and replaced by this basically monarchical structure in which the king runs the show and everybody goes and listens to a preacher reading from the bible and the heart's ripped out of the thing and i think that when you take uh the monastics tradition away from christianity when you take the virgin mary away when you knock out the feminine half of the of the, of the Christian, well, not the feminine Very half, big. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, the divine feminine, when you take that out, when you take out the, the holy wells and things which still exist here in Ireland, you've, you've actually ripped out the heart of the thing and it starts to die. It starts to become this intellectual, dry, theological argument, which I think is what's happened. And mm -hmm. you can go to a Church of England service now and, well, I don't even know what the Church of England believes, to be honest. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't really don't I could ask 10 Church of England priests what the meaning of the resurrection was and I'd get 10 different answers. I really would. I saw that. I think you're, you're, you're so right, yeah. You know, and I'm not going to get that in the Orthodox Church. And, you know, the Orthodox Church has plenty of its own problems because it's a human establishment. Of course it does. But but it's still guarding that there's a mystery at the heart of it, which is still real, I think. And uh -huh. that's what interests me. And the thing that interests me now, particularly living in Ireland, is that when I look back to the early Irish saints and the early British saints as well, I'm looking at a tradition which is very similar to the current Orthodox Church, which is the Western inherit inheritance of everybody, whether they're Orthodox or, Catholic, Orthodox or Catholic or anything else, because there was only one church then. And these are people living in caves and living on islands and living in hermitages. And, you know, there were there were more monasteries in Ireland than there were towns in the early years of the Christian faith here. Um, and so we had this really powerful living faith, a kind of desert Christianity in the Atlantic which had a power in it and a mystery in it. And it converted people without any violence. You know, people became Christian, not because the Christians forced them to, or they had any power, which happened later, regrettably in places, but didn't happen here. That's the essence of the thing, I think. Right. And I still think you can see that in the Orthodox Church. As I say, there's lots of 
you know, other things in the church that's that right. you don't like so much because it's because it's a church but but it does something it has something so it's almost as if i feel like the orthodox church has come into the west with a lot of immigration especially in the last few decades for a reason actually i think it's bringing back something that we lost that was always there so there's something to discover in it i think and it's that exactly that power of christianity that you were talking about that's just drained away from from what we have here yeah and i think well you know when so when when i returned to the church after leaving at, at the age of 18 um i was 30 to maybe 33 um we we actually we re-entered in the romanian byzantine catholic church so it's it's essentially the same thing you experienced but but still under the under the pope and as, as a friend priest friend of mine says yeah way under the pope uh <laughs> that uh yeah i know i mean i know when the first time i went to this romanian liturgy of the the, the the divine liturgy of saint john chrysostom i was blown away i had to go i had to take a minute afterwards it was it was i was hmm. so bowled yeah, over and so it was so it's so extraordinary and i, and I think the, the, probably the the powerful thing that the orthodox church has is it's it's fragmented <laughs> so you don't have the the administrative uh, weight that the Catholic Church is is you know is burdened by, um, so there is there is a little bit more know, freedom, but there's you know there's also bickering. Um, but I but I, I totally agree. I mean I you know I don't know if you know this book uh, is it F E Warren the about the Celtic liturgy, which came out in 1888 and. Uh, um, the, his argument is that the roots of the Celtic Church were as much, if not more, Eastern than Western. So the Celtic Church was this interesting combination of Eastern practices, like monasticism, for instance, but but also Western practices. And of course, you know, my children, up, you know, the first five, <laughs> all, all have uh, Celtic names because when when they were born we were deeply my wife and i were deeply immersed in what we can now call celtic spirituality you know that which is both connected to to heaven and to the earth right deeply connected yeah. to earth and in fact i just found last week uh, i when i was a waldorf teacher i wrote a a play for the actually the the lower school to perform it was a it was the voyage of saint brendan and I found it after 20 years, 25 years. So I'm thinking about publishing it maybe as a children's book. But the point being is this was such an immersive experience. And 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 this is probably what has, um, in a way, I feel like, you know, I've met you, Paul. <laughs> no, I haven't met you. Because, you know, throughout my work, and, and Mike knows this, you know, I'm, I'm uh, fascinated by not by the neo-pagan movement, but by those kind of folk and what we what are often misconstrued as pagan elements in early Christianity and, and medieval and, and uh, early modern Christianity. And you see parts of that still in the Orthodox Church that are these kinds of folk practices that connect uh, the faithful, not only to the heavenly liturgy, but to the earthly liturgy as well. And you mentioned holy wells and shrines and thing, pilgrimages. 
and that's part of it, right? And, and those things are, you know, I, I, my wife and I always bewail that, that where we live, there are no holy wells in Michigan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we need some holy wells. And in fact, my oldest son was actually baptized with water from the chalice well at Glastonbury. Mm-hmm. So, which I brought, I smuggled home on the plane. <laughs> well, you can reclaim it from all the neo pagans. That's that's a good thing to do. <laughs> yeah, I mean Ireland is um Ireland is full of holy wells, and as I said, there aren't not there are not many left in England where I come from because of the Reformation, but they're still here. They're not nearly as visited or used as they used to be, but a lot of them still are. And it's exactly that. You can go to some incredible wells. Every one of them is dedicated to a different saint. Some of those saints are very, very local, very, very old as well. Um, some of them will be dedicated to the big saints like St. Bridget or St. Patrick, but others, others not. There are some very obscure local saints. Every parish in Ireland would have had a patron saint not so long ago. There's still a holy mountain in Ireland, Crook Patrick, that people climb on the same day each year. Yeah. Um, it's a real folk spirituality, but it's also Christianity. Um, and mm-hmm. There was not, there wasn't a Celtic church as such, but there was a British Celtic spirituality that was part of the early church. I mean, one of one of the things that's really interesting that I've discovered since moving here is exactly what you said: the links between Ireland and, well, later Britain because the Irish take it to Britain. Irish Christianity in the very early years and Egypt, literally the East, mm-hmm. are, are really interesting there's a there's an interesting researcher called alf monahan who does talks in ireland and uh, he has a talk you can find on youtube who has really put together a lot of the evidence that he's been collecting up for decades about this and his his notion is that the first irish christians came directly from egypt we know that we know that many of the the irish the the first irish people came from the middle east actually many irish people are descended from turkish farmers because the seaway up through the Mediterranean and up to Britain is actually very easy to traverse, much easier than the land. Um, and so you have this influence, which is traceable in, in things like the, the similarities of patterns in Irish gospel books to patterns in, in, in the Coptic church. The handbells that used, the early Irish monks used to ring to bring people to prayer being identical to the ones that the Copts still use today. Right. The fact that on the, there are 60 of these great high crosses remaining in Ireland, these beautiful high crosses, and the most common saint on all of them is St. Anthony. St. Anthony and St. Paul of Thebes. You barely ever see St. Patrick, actually. They were very, very interested in the Desert Fathers, probably because they had people coming directly from the desert. And so what you see in early Irish and then British Christianity, which is our heritage here in the West, is a Desert Father spirituality in basically in Northern Europe, in the Atlantic, in the in the woods and in the fields and on the, on the islands. So that means that what the Orthodox Church has at its heart is not a foreign thing that's come from somewhere else. It's it's a return to the roots of what our Christian faith was for all of us, whatever church we're in now, which I find tremendously inspiring. It's something that you can go and re-nourish yourself from. You don't have to adopt another religion or okay. go to something you don't recognize. You're actually going back to what the church was before it got corrupted by modernity or power or whatever it was that corrupted it you know which i think is there's a lot of there's a lot of potential excitement in that for me right there is, now, there is. Paul, i'm going to ask you that um so it's been my position and mike knows this uh that you know i mean i understand i totally understand that you know in fact i just had talked to a student this week who's kind of a neo-pagan uh, and I totally understand why people get attracted to that because they want a religion that's connected to something real and they feel the Christianity that they in which they've been raised is not it's 
you know, especially in the Episcopalian or Anglican tradition, like you said, I don't know what these guys believe. And they're going to start calling God the Father they, and we're in trouble. Uh, a matter of time. But I think these, I think these people interested in neo-paganism or the neo-pagans themselves are actually, what, the, what they hanker for is that kind of uh, connected Christianity that we're describing here, right? That's what they want. And if they well, can that's, find that's, it in the church, yeah. they would stay there. I think there's a lot of truth in that. I mean, I went through this neo-pagan phase myself, and it's exactly that. I was looking for God, essentially, but I wouldn't have put it like that, perhaps. And I wanted a God that felt like it was connected to, to as you say, the, the natural world, but also to reality. So I think there's a few things that's interesting. I mean, I think one of the things that pe people go to neo-paganism for exactly that reason. They also, on the negative side, they'll go to it because neo-paganism allows people to invent their own religion. Right. So you can you can choose your gods, you know, and you can choose what you do and you can choose what you you don't have to really change yourself. And actually, the thing about, you know, the, this is the other thing about the Orthodox Church that I paradoxically found attractive was that it was going to force me to do a ton of stuff I didn't want to do. So I have to I have to fast for half the year. You know, I, there's a lot of there's a lot of praying. There's a lot of going to the liturgy. There's a lot of trying to actually change my life rather than just going, oh, well, I accept Jesus. So I'm a Christian now. So I'll just go along with things as I, as I was before I'm. I wanted to be changed. Otherwise, why bother? And I think that, interestingly, the, the, a lot of people are coming into orthodoxy now for that reason, because they want a Christianity that's kind of robust. It's real. It's connected to the world as we see it. And, but it's also giving people a challenge, actually, which uh, is, is very interesting. A lot of people want that challenge because modernity doesn't give them one. So I think that, yeah, people go to neo-paganism it, it almost like it's it can be a stepping stone but then if you if, if you're in there looking at christianity then as you say if you're looking at a lot of the modern churches you're going well what's that why would i want to go there what's that got to say to me you want a christianity that's that has that has that original power in it and which tells you you know you have to change yourself and we'll help yeah. you to change yourself well um, you need something what, 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 right? yeah you need something to push yeah. against. I mean, that's what you found with Absolutely. nature. And you need, when you're you need, working I mean, with nature, it pushes back. Right? Yeah, and it is the interesting thing. So paradoxically, something like the Church of England, you mentioned the sort of pronouns of God thing that's going on at the moment, which the media are getting very het up about in Britain. But, you know, the church, something like the Church of England has spent so long trying to keep everybody happy, all these sort of nice clergy types who want to just keep be inclusive and keep everybody happy that they don't keep anybody happy because right. they've got such a wishy-washy version of the Christian faith. And you look at it and you think, I have no idea what you believe. It doesn't seem to be what you believed 10 years ago. So mm -hmm. what, are you, what are you doing here? Paradoxically, the more challenging the Christian church is, almost the harder it is to get into, the more interesting it is, you know, because you're, you're thinking, well, this, these people are serious. Yeah. I mean, if I think of, if I think of something like, if I think of a religion like Islam in the West, which more people are converting to as well, you can say what you like about that. But it, I don't know any Muslims who are serious about their faith who are prepared to compromise it. You know, you go into a mosque, they'll tell you what they believe. And they're not they're not interested in the pronouns of Allah. You know, they'll say this. Well, this is what, this is what we believe. Here's the Quran. Here's what you do. Here's you know, that's that's the story. And you can take that or not take that. And that's actually far more attractive as a religious faith, whether it's Islam or anything else than a booth of people who don't really know what they believe in and are just trying to try not to. Yeah. Is there something, though, for me, again, so like, you know, lifelong Catholics still work officially in a Catholic institution, worked at a monastery, Trappist monastery for six years. But, you know, so, something we all have in common is this kind of critique of the machine 
And again, not saying this is right, but if we take another author we all have in common, mentioned by Michael, mentioned by you as Ivan Illich, you know, he was talking, again, very emphatically about a post-religious church that was, you know, even more ancient, more ancient, going back to the marketplaces, the, the fields and the Holy Springs that has everything. But this, it is free, you know, another big influence on me is John Cowper Powis, you know, who probably had a greater natural the abbot read him at the monastery and said he's never seen such powers of introspection. You know, and he had this great earthborn mysticism. And he was always talking about something, you know, again, deeper than religion. You know, and I just think that like in, in the Catholic church, like the Latin mass or some of this stuff I'm referring to as religion. And I'm thinking of women I know, young women who, you know, this young generation, I'm thinking college age, they have this search for authenticity, this real distaste for hypocrisy, and what I'm feeling is that they can bring this kind of humorous, think of meme culture, but this humorous peering behind the curtain of so much of what goes on. So we're peering behind the curtain of the priests of the medical, for-profit medical industry. We're peering behind the curtain of that thing we've all inherited that says trust the institutions. We're peering behind the curtain of higher ed. And I think, you know, knowing the Catholic church, uh, you know, even peering behind the curtain and meeting some of these priests um, and so forth that, you know, Jesus came on his death, you know, the, the, the curtain in the, in the temple was rent. And um, what do you, so it's, a, it's not to say that Ivan Illich or any of these people were right, but when you're talking about return to the ancient, you know, do you think if Jacques Ellul or like Ivan Illich, you know, two of maybe my favorites, Lewis Mumford's up there, would they, you know, what would they, I don't know, I'm struggling, I'm just thinking in real time, that I'm not trying to move to something else, but I think there's something beyond both this Norman, this normal Roman Catholicism and Orthodoxy, that again, there's a blessing over, there's a, you know, there's a blessing over the bread, there's a consecration and a prayer of thanksgiving. You know, we meet as families, real community and so forth. But um, it's, it's this yoking that we all wanna do, yoking of spirituality with an anti-machine philosophy and, are there people who, other people than you, Paul, who are doing this kind of orthodox thing, who are also hard hitting, you know, because I think Illich and, and uh, Jacques Lowe were soulmates on this stuff, you know, again, kind of downgrading this religious piece, talking about the gospel and so forth. You know, I'm kind of banging this drum a little bit because I think I'm struggling with this in my own so much. You know? Yeah, well, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, it's um, to my mind, the orthodox faith, if you're following it properly, the Christian mm -hmm. faith, if you're following it properly, is an anti-machine theology, <laughs> I think. I don't think we need to add anything to it because, you know, it's it, this is either real or it isn't. And if it's real, we don't actually need to add anything to it and we can't anyway. Um, how mm -hmm. we express it might change, but the truth is either the truth or it isn't. If you were living like Christ told you to live, you couldn't build the machine. Uh, and he's not living in the machine. And the great saints are not machine thinkers either. These are These are free people following God. If you're giving away your possessions and turning the other cheek and loving your neighbor and all of the other radical, almost impossible things that we're supposed to do, you can't live in this giant profit-making commercial monstrosity that we've created, destroying creation as you do so. It's not possible to do that. Mm -hmm. you know, actual Christians couldn't create it, which means we're probably not actual Christians. And I'm not making a case that you know, every Orthodox Christian is doing that. They're not really um there's not enough of a critique of the machine in the orthodox church if you ask me there's not enough of a critique of technology and that's partly because the orthodox church's strength and its weakness are in some ways the same thing the strength is that it hasn't gone through modernity as you said so it hasn't had a reformation it hasn't been broken in two it hasn't had to deal with the scientific revolution in quite the same way and it doesn't have a centralized structure where the pope can just 
say one day, right, we're changing the whole liturgy and everybody has to do it. It wouldn't be possible to do that in the church. And so that means there's a lot of arguing, but it also means that it's impossible for some radical centralist power to just shock the whole thing. Right. The other thing that's powerful about the Orthodox Church is that for a lot of its history, it's been persecuted, either by um, Ottomans or by communists, or the, a lot of the church mm -hmm. has been under the yoke of, of some anti-Christian power, which paradoxically strengthens it, I think, actually. when I think when Christianity is in power, it's a disaster. And when it's we all agree <laughs> it usually you know, when it's being persecuted it finds its mm -hmm. true faith i mean i think that's 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 the truth but i don't think that that it follows from that that we don't need a church i don't think that i mean that's well, i definitely think we need a church i don't i think there can be a religionless church not a religionless christianity again this notion that you know the theologian william Kavanaugh or illich or anybody would say that you know we only saw ourselves as subscribing to a religion you know the wars of religion we could now say were wars of the burgeoning nation state you know catholics and protestants fought against catholics and protestants so what you do is when the nation state which has all this power could finally tell those people in france that you belong to a religion you know they mm. they couldn't have seen themselves prior to that as belonging to religion they so were part of the church when you say religion yeah. what do you what do you mean how are we, how are you defining well that? this notion that in its exaggerated form you do something to affect something kind of far away there's a little bit of magic but in exaggerated form we would say the person who's scrupulous who is um who suffers from obsessive compulsive disorder and so forth see working in in catholic campus ministry and i've been working with students two of whom are orthodox they're saying their young Orthodox priests are all suffering from OCD too, right? So it's this religious behavior that if, you know, when I eat, I have to organize things in such a way. Um, young people, if you told them there was a church like the Catholic or the Orthodox, that on these days you fast, on this day you say these Marian prayers and others, in an anxious world where things are hard to control, somebody suffering from anxiety that's going to bend in that scrupulosity or obsessive compulsive way, they're going to look at the Catholic church and say, I love that look flies like shit. And mm -hmm. I think, you know, that if we look at the machine, what it, if we study it, we're all studying it, what we're seeing, and our friend Guido, or I would say it too, the church or the Christian, the religion is to tame the anarchist impulses of the gospel. It just kind of keeps it tolerable, keeps it tolerable. And that the, the gospel we need now is this, you know, and you've got your anarchist roots, this more anarchistic peace and love anarchism, you know, and, um, and it's just that I see so many young people when I'm defining religion that way. Again, it, it always has a proscenium arch or, or you know, a screen. So it's the ultra rail or the iconostasis. And we know in the early church, everybody saw the persona was it. And we saw people's faces. After in the West, the Edict of Milan, you have to build a structure that has a proscenium arch because it's about, by definition, crowd control. And when Jesus, you know, and so you have a crowd on the other side and not a community. That's that's a thing. That's something I want to make. When I go to a rock concert, I don't feel alone. But in the antithesis of what St. Paul said, when he said in Christ, there's no, neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek. What we have instead of like a community of faces and persons, we have a faceless mass. Bridget Brophy wrote a, a beautiful book on Mozart called Mozart, the dramatist. And she used Sigmund Freud's book on social psychology, and the ego, to kind of make this point that um, two girls, if they were both crushing on hottie Michael Martin and he was in their high school, they're in competition over him. But once you put the proscenium arch, uh, the ultra rail, the iconostasis, on the other side of that thing, they just both, they're best friends because they're both have a crush on Michael Martin. Some of these dynamics interest me. And I think it's the instant, it's religion that has played on these dynamics that right now in an apocalyptic time, we're called to peek behind the iconostasis and realize if you're like the Roman Catholic church, most of these guys are nuts. 
you know, whether they're married or not. Some people say because they're married, you know, they don't have that stuff. A, a guy sitting right next to me in the same office I'm in now said, oh, my God, his young Orthodox priest is just a, you know, a tyrant, you know, clericalism running rampant. And I guess my anarchist impulses want to see it all kind of fade away. And I think there's an opportunity with, again, the younger generation with their love of authenticity, uh, their, their meme culture and so forth. There could be this big leveling. But that's kind of what I mean by religion, you know, uh, this notion that the kingdom of God is in the afterlife. Do these actions to get to place A called heaven as opposed to place B called hell? It's all so much, um, we have to do it when we have to do crowd control. And we see this in all religions. Like when the larger vehicle in Buddhism came into India, uh, as opposed to Hinayana Buddhism, you know, you see that they have to come up with something that follows these parameters that I'll call religion. And I think it's there in our institutions. So I'm looking across the board that we need to like this anarchist impulse, you know. Well, isn't that what the Catholic Church has basically been doing since Vatican II, though? I mean, literally taking down the altar rails, peeking behind there, et cetera, et cetera. Isn't that part of what's led to the church to collapse and into small pieces? Yeah, but the uh, yeah, it's almost like in one sense, yes, but it reconstitutes itself like clericalism. When you had the old Latin mass priest, it's still there where people they have the cool priest who's super hip. He gets drunk with the college students and it's still like, oh, but I'm friends with Father Joe. I saw him wasted last night. These things have morphed, right? You, you clean out one demon and seven more comes in, Christ says. And I would say in the Catholic Church, we still have this clericalism. Pope Francis was great on it. And it's almost post-Vatican to become more because you're not anonymous anymore. You know, you're the priest and they want you to have personality. And uh, it's becoming almost more insidious because of the changes of Vatican II. Not to say they weren't necessary, but the way it's become because we're all addicted to religion. Yeah, it's funny. I have almost the opposite view. Um, I used to have that view, but I have quite a different yeah. one now, partly because of my experience of orthodoxy. Um, I mean, I have Catholic, older Catholic friends in Ireland here. A, a story that one, I remember a story that one friend told me she used to, in the, in the local church, the people had... Um, saved up for a long time to buy themselves a new altar rail and they, the local community had saved up and they'd got this beautiful altar rail installed and then Vatican II came along and a, a new priest a new trendy young priest was installed in the parish and he came in and he said right the first thing we're doing is ripping out that altar rail because we you know we need to be the people need to have access and they were just devastated by this just kind of this destruction that had come in from above well, with that works. sort of impulse and mm -hmm. it's you know it's interesting to me that what I have found in the orthodox church is not it's not you know, if, if that's what the church was, I wouldn't have been interested in it. It's, um, I'm not finding crowd control, but I am finding the separation of, say, the holy place that's behind the iconostasis from the place where those of us are standing who are not there. The fact that only the priest and the deacon can enter that, that that's where the ritual happens, that that's where the, 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 the moving of the people, the moving of the, the, the clergy between the, the, the almost the profane world and the holy world in that in the liturgy itself is enormously powerful and I think necessary and I think actually that the machine what the machine wants to do is break us all down into individual parts uh, any kind of machine religion actually I think is is far more likely to be an individualist religion in which we're sort of picking and choosing our own bits of the faith that we like whether it's Christianity or neo-paganism or aversion to Buddhism or whatever it is where we we can invent our own god and I think that there is something really powerful and important about maintaining the tradition. And that's what orthodoxy does. It says, here's a tradition that we've been pursuing for 2000 years, right? We've been, we've been saying this same liturgy for a thousand years and we've been saying it mm -hmm. because it does something really powerful. 
Right. And the notion that we should sort of chip away at it now because we don't like this or we don't like that or we should have more access to this. I think there's a there's a false notion, which, again, I used to believe in, that the more access we have to things and the more, quote, inclusive they become, the better they are. I don't think that's always true, right. actually. I don't think it's true. I mean, it, I, I think the danger of having, say, a clergy is that the clergy may become corrupt, and sometimes they do. But the danger of not having a clergy... I think is greater in a way because you don't you don't then have anyone who is trained to administer these mysteries you know and it's the same thing as monastics we could say oh let's get rid of all these monastics they're not doing anything useful but once you do that something really significant's gone um, and you can't necessarily measure what it is maybe you've got a more egalitarian faith but you've lost something that's right at the well, heart of it well i think part of what i mean part of the problem with any of this, and I see this. Uh, I mean, I think you do see uh, people who tend to be in, in the Orthodox Church. I have a lot of friends who are Orthodox, who and my brother-in-law used to be Orthodox. He was about to be a priest, and uh, I mean, the clericalism is there as well as in the Catholic Church. And what happens is, and like you said, and I think this is true, that people get attracted to either Roman Catholicism, like a traditionalist kind of version of Catholicism or orthodoxy because they want all the rules they want something to push back against them right they want somebody they, they want that direction and I think part of it and I've written about this is uh we we live in a world absolutely lacking in fathers right in a way right so I mean <laughs> call, call no man father but but you want somebody to be the father you the people looking for a father figure and I think part of the of the the dynamic we see here is that, and especially a lot of young men who are attracted to orthodoxy are attracted to that fatherhood. Now, I, a friend of mine used to be an orthodox priest, became a Byzantine Catholic priest, and he recently confided in me that, that he's thinking about leaving the priesthood entirely, becoming a Sufi, because he's he, he, can't, you know, he, he can't find a place to rest. And, and and I I think the problem he's run into is is with clericalism, and all these different expressions of Christianity, which you know, it's it's sorry to say to see that, but but I th I think what we had in Christianity prior to mass communication was you know if you think about a parish in Ireland in the 1700s or even earlier the 1500s. They were so far removed from the power structure, whether it was the Catholic, and you could even say in the Orthodox Church as well. There, people, parishes were so far removed from that that they could uh, find these um, folk expressions of their faith combined with the, the traditional liturgy, right? And it was less. Uh, it was. It was. People were, were, you know, outside of loop. Now, I mean, the Pope utters a pronouncement on Monday, people are are uh, commenting on it by Monday afternoon. And, you know, this mass communication is, and this is the problem, right? Becomes a part of the machine. And and the, the Orthodox Church, any church is not immune from that, has become, it becomes subsumed into that machine that's due to mass communication. And, and the organic, which is the opposite to that, allows and in fact, even in England, as you know, prior to the Reformation, there there were several different rites just in England. Not mm. to mention, you know, the, there had been a Celtic rite, there was the Sarum rite, there was the the rite of Lincoln. There were all these different local variations on the liturgy. 
And you see that also in the Orthodox Church. With you see it more often in the Orthodox Church, going from church to the church uh, by the by the the melodies that are sung. It's very different in a in a church that has an Arabic or Middle Eastern background, like the Antiochians, compared to the Romanians, which I, I'm more familiar with than, than a lot. Of, um, it's 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 very different in each of these expressions. So you, know, you can get the kind of the local flavor of the liturgy. And, uh, and, uh, and I just wonder, you know, how, you know, and, and to me, that seems like one of the big things that Christianity has to face is, you know, to, to resist being subsumed into the machine because it's so convenient. Well, I think that's what's happened, isn't it? I mean, that's what's happened in all sorts of ways, either through power structures or through just people becoming comfortable. Um, and not actually wanting to carry a cross, because nobody really wants to carry a cross, do we? <laughs> if, we if we're honest, but we have to. Um, I don't know. We could, couldn't we see Christian history and the whole story as, as a tension between these two things, between the, the necessity of a structure and the necessity of a kind of more anarchic expression of, of the thing? Because if it's, it's the same with anything else, right? Too much anarchism, the whole thing collapses. You haven't got any structure at all. You haven't got anything you agree on. You've just got individualism. But then too much structure, too much dogma, too much power. You get this fossilized monster and, and it doesn't express what is actually supposed to be expressed from it. There's, there's nothing to do with the gospel. So right. it's like that was what the whole of the Reformation was about, almost in, in, a, in a nutshell, wasn't it? That sort of battle between force and form or something. It's So it's not as if that's an, it's not as if that's an argument you can ever settle in a way. But then it's maybe not as if one side is necessarily always right either. You have to have a balance mm -hmm. between them. And I think that in a way, what you just said is interesting, isn't it? You can have a I mean, when, when you look at, say, the Irish church, as I said, there wasn't exact there wasn't really a thing called the Celtic church. that was a separate church. There was a Celtic, quote, Celtic expression of the Christian church. So these yeah. people were still Nicene Christians. Right. They hadn't invented their own church, but they had a very particular expression of it that came from the place they were in. And the I people, yep, yep, yep. And as you say, in the Orthodox Church, maybe that's more common than in Catholicism because the liturgy is in different languages. I mean, I'm in the Romanian Church. It's very much a, an expression of certain Romanian customs and Romanian saints and Romanian dress and things like that. But it's still the divine liturgy that you'll get anywhere else as well. And there's maybe you're looking for maybe you're looking for that kind of balance, you know, where you can take the essence of the Christian Church and the Christian teaching, which you're not just bending for your own purpose but you're expressing it in a way that has life in it, you know, and, 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 and has power in it and has, and has, makes demands of people and attracts people. I mean, if Christianity isn't attracting people, it's doing something wrong. You know, it's not supposed to attract people in the way that a supermarket does by trying to sell itself, but you know, it's, it ought to create, here's the thing. Christianity ought to create attractive Christians who people look at and go, well, that's a good life. I that's want that. so true. Because we have the running from and the running to things. You know, with young people, we have people who are running to the church and are running mm -hmm. from. But I'm always that second question you asked, Paul, it's just brilliant, right? But it's like, um, is the church producing these holy fools? You know, a big thing for me. Is the church producing these saints that we would say, I want what he has, that mm -hmm. freedom? Um, somebody who laughs the laugh of a free man, you know, somebody who has the peace that surpasses understanding, somebody mm -hmm. who seems to understand the freedom of the lilies of the field and birds of the air but what we're seeing in the roman catholic church and it's some of the young people i see drawn to orthodoxy nothing against orthodoxy you see you're such a good person for me to ask this stuff to because you see i'm not talking about one tradition versus the other mm -hmm. but um you know people are looking for a pure you know a simple solution to a complex problem 
in about nine out of 10 young people I see looking to join the church. And my question is like, again, like with the priests, do any of them look like they have any more measure of freedom than the mechanic who changed my tires in my car yesterday? And if not, can we at least start to get into the nitty gritty about why that is? You know? Yeah, well, I'm lucky in the priest I, I met. It's one of the reasons I became Orthodox is I think he's a genuinely holy man, my priest, and also yeah, a man who's yeah. very, very much got his feet on the ground at the same time, which is a rare combination. Mm -hmm. And I've met. Yeah. And there know, are I mean, some, uh, despite what I've said, are, sure. There yeah. are some, and the, the church yeah. is a human institution. So some priests are going to be yeah. more advanced than others, and some are going to be corrupt, and some are going to be wonderful, and that's how it works. And mm -hmm. it's, I don't know, as you were speaking, I was thinking of the Desert Fathers, and I was thinking, okay, so what does St. Anthony do? St. Anthony goes to a church, he hears the teaching about how you have to give everything away. So he gives everything away, and he goes off to the tombs, and he goes off to the tombs to, to fight the devil, and he goes off to the tombs to discipline himself. And he goes off to the tombs to follow the teachings of the gospel. And so he's very much following the teachings of the church, but he's doing it in a radical way that seems insane to a lot of the people around him. And he's so radical about it that he ends up mm -hmm. being such an, a strangely attractive yeah. man that people break down the door of his cell and drag him out physically and say, you have to come and teach us what you've learned. Um, that's the kind of really interesting combination of you know, in a way, dogmatic Nicene Christianity, that's what he's practicing. But the, the actual fundamental practice of it is so radical and so outsidery that it creates something completely new. And that's mm -hmm. true of all the early saints, all the saints that are interesting to me anyway, is that they're doing something traditional, which is also something radical and edgy and new mm -hmm. and trying always to get back to the heart of the thing by stripping everything away. And maybe just in the modern world, we're just too comfortable. We're too wealthy. We don't want to strip things away. It's too threatening. But as you said, I think it's absolutely true that the church is going to have to strip a lot of things away and see a lot of things fall away and, and go back to. And so the question then is what you keep. What's the essence? Because you don't want to throw out too much because then you're in trouble as well. That's the, that's the other. As I say, then you go back to the sort of Church of England problem where you chuck out everything that offends everybody and you've got you've got nothing left. Yeah. Um, so you've got to you've got to try and get that balance right. But I mean, a lot of people, younger men especially, are attracted to the Orthodox Church because it's traditional and they want something to hold on to. And they say, I want Christianity and this looks like the real deal. And it's challenging to me. Young men need a challenge. And most mm -hmm. uh, most liberal churches are not going to give them a challenge. They want a test. They want to right. they want a war. Right. And you get a war with the Orthodox Church. You get the, the, the inner war. You get the spiritual mm -hmm. war. And I think I think it's also the case that, and this is probably true of me, you can go to a church for one reason and then find that it's doing something else to you that you didn't necessarily expect, you know? Mm -hmm. You go in and go, right, I want my trad church that's not woke and I'm, I'm going to go and do this. And then you find yourself <laughs> being transformed into a shape you didn't expect. And right. I mean, that's not the reason I went to orthodoxy, but it's you might find that you go to something because you're running away and actually find that you had to go there to be transformed. Mm -hmm. So that's you know, that's that's an interesting possibility as well. No, here's a here's a practical question: Are there a lot of Romanians in Ireland? <laughs> uh, yeah, a fair number actually now. Okay, there's been a lot of migration over the last twenty years or so. Okay, yeah, after after the fall of communism, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had a lot of lot of movement from East Europe to West Europe over the last twenty years. Okay, and uh, so so this happened. So when I entered the Byzantine Catholic Church under the Romanians many years ago. And unfortunately they kind of chased us out because we weren't Romanian after a while. Um, but one of the, so I was like, you know, I was all gung ho. So I was, I was reading the way of a pilgrim. And I, before that I had been reading 
Thomas Akempis. Then I realized I can't do this. <laughs> I have children to feed. You know, you know, I have I have people people relying on me for their sustenance. And that so for me, you know, looking at at this 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 aspect, and it's not just Western or Eastern, it's just a part of Christianity that uh that there there seems to be less available uh kind of spiritual direction in that way for for the married people people with families than there is for you know the way of a pilgrim or thomas kempis those are for that's for monks that's for, mm -hmm. or for pilgrims that's people who don't have not just attachments so it's very buddhist in that way it's you don't have attachments but you you know if i have children who, who are relying on me for food and shelter, I it, it makes it impossible to enter. And I used to carry around the way of a pilgrim in my pocket and I would read it, you know, sitting around waiting for, for whatever. Um, so I, I think, so I think there's, there's that dynamic too. And I, and I really, you know, I appreciate, you know, I used to do the Jesus prayer like it is in a way of a pilgrim, but I couldn't renounce the world because I couldn't renounce my children and my wife. Right. Did you do you find that is a is a tension in your life? Paul? Yeah, isn't it? It's interesting that it's actually another conversation people have been having on my on my Substack recently because that's the question that always comes up. I mean, personally, I'm really attracted to this kind of hermetic, living in a cave monastic lifestyle, but I'm obviously not attracted enough to have actually done it ever. <laughs> <laughs> that's and the I subject have... of your first things article, by the way, that people should read. It's yeah, really I mean, it's, it really interests me, and I think it's absolutely the core of something that we need to rediscover but only a small percentage of christians have ever been monastics or hermits only a small percentage of monastics have ever been hermits you know it's a tiny tiny number of people who do this and i think it's absolutely necessary for the faith but most christians are in the world you know i'm i'm married i have two children where I'm, i have to provide for them like you do so it's a really interesting question is how to live the life um how especially in the age of the machine in a family and you know a lot of people talk about and some people are doing this you know getting together with other families in communities or at least just living near people and having that strength um together to try and try and live in that way almost a sort of almost a sort of lay monasticism or something i don't know exactly right. what it would be like and there are there are communities that do this there are places that do this and in 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 times when everybody was a christian you know then that's what was happening anyway but now it's not that now we're in the machine world of, of, of kind of materialism mm -hmm. and individualism so how do you live an orthodox life how do you live a radical christian life of any kind it's always supposed to be challenging you know we're not supposed to be conformed to the world as saint paul tells us so so it's a very good question actually is how to live that life in the world as a family man it's something that's i don't have an answer to it other than just saying what i've just said but yeah. i think maybe maybe as if, if as more people go ahead into this kind of new world with a new new type of christianity that's going to have to be stronger again they're they're, they're going to have mm -hmm. to start answering that kind of question yeah okay now the you know we're about an hour and 15 minutes in you know i want to uh you know michael or or paul you know take us take us in a different direction for 10 minutes something you know michael you've seen in paul's essays there's you know there's really really so much you know i like your okay. your language of, uh, go ahead <laughs> go. Have a practical question good kind of what kind of scythe do you use, Paul? What a scythe? Ah, well, what kind of scythe do I use? Well, I use an I use an Austrian scythe, or what's known mm -hmm. as an Austrian scythe, over here, which I learned to use from a man called Simon Fairley, who's a very brilliant eccentric scholar farmer who lives in the West Country in England. 
And he started about 30 years ago trying to mow his lawn with a scythe. And the old English scythe is a very heavy thing. It's got a huge, huge yeah. blade, a great big handle. You've got to be about six foot tall to be able to use it. Uh, and he discovered the, the continental scythe, which is much lighter because the English and the Irish grass is thicker than it is on the continent mm. of Europe, broadly because it's so wet. Um, and he started to import these things and then he started to give lessons and that's where I learned to use it. But it's a lovely light scythe, all sorts of different types of blade. I mean, I'm not quite as obsessed with scything as I used to be, but I went through a re real scythe phase of teaching it myself, buying every kind of blade I could buy, trying it all out on different types of types of grass, That's learning great. to peen, all of it. It's a lovely, it's a real antidote to a machine life, actually, scything, just as simple as that. There's, you, um, you, there's a lovely... You sharpen with a, with a hammer or with a... Yeah, well, you sharpen it with a stone, but when it gets okay. too blunt to sharpen with a stone, you peen it with a hammer, yeah. yeah so. Okay. So, yeah, because uh, I, I have a, I have one of the Irish sites, like you talked about, it, it, weighs, it weighs a bit. And it wears me mm. out quickly, and it's not. It, and it's it's not. And I've used the light, the lighter ones before out in California one time, but yeah. That, so we usually don't have that much to mow because I have cows, but mm, there is a helps. spot down by our pond where it gets the reeds get pretty high sometimes, and I like to get down there. And my site, it's okay, but I would like to get a little something better. And your your essay on it inspired me, and I figured. <laughs> I'll talk to someone who's taught it. Mm, yeah, you need to go to the. Uh, go, there's a website, the Scythe Shop, that Simon fairly okay. runs. And he, he actually has people in America who sell them as well. So okay, so I recommend that because uh, if you can get yourself a really beautiful, light, easy to use scythe, it's quite life changing actually. It's uh, it's a and wonderful then, thing to do. Yeah. Traditional time to do it is early in the morning. You get out there when the dew is still on the grass and you cut it with the sun rising. If you can do that, I didn't it's know that. Perfect, perfect beginning to the day. You know. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And let's let's say where your project's going to go, Paul. You know, I'm quoting from, you see it in three parts, and I'm talking specifically about the Abbey of Misrule, but I do want you to sell, you know, your writings and your thinking is so important. I, I took a little passage here. You know, the project that I launched here 19 months ago was always envisioned as a three-part essay series exploring what I called the machine, the global technological society now closing around us at light speed. Part one, would explore where this machine came from. They're on your Substack part two, which I think you're winding up now, would look into its manifestation today. And part three would explore how to live through its reign and resist where possible. Say more about you know what you're doing now um, to explain it to people and why they should kind of follow your work. Yeah, well, we're on to part three now, as I say, and it's really, yeah. I think what I've done with this with this series, it's, it's almost, I'm trying to, stupidly ambitiously i'm trying to sort of summarize all the ideas i've had over the last 20 years and put them into a form that make that, that makes sense and this 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 image of the machine is is the one that i've alighted on to try and to try and bring it together um you know none, none of these ideas are particularly original they've all been had before by greater people than me but i'm synthesizing them um and trying to write about where this machine society came from how it's manifesting now and i've just started the, the third part which is how you actually live through this what you can do about it and fundamentally what you can do about it is you can't change it we're not going to be able to abolish it there's no political revolution that's going to do that yeah, but right. we have to we have to learn what it is and we have to learn how to live through it and we have to work out how to nimbly dodge underneath its legs as it lumbers by because it's yeah. not a sustainable thing. I mean, the thing about this this machine society, I don't think it's spiritually sustainable, culturally sustainable, ecologically sustainable. The thing we're trying to build, this global matrix of interconnected, you know, 
open technological uh, whatever the hell it is it's not yeah, going to last it can't last it's not human scale mm -hmm. it's not god-given it's not it doesn't it's changing the climate of the whole planet you know it's not something that is well, sustainable it's going to come down if it's not coming down already so it seems to me that our, our kind of job is to survive it you know mm -hmm. and to keep keep the flame of truth burning and to try and live in a human scale way um, as much as we can uh, in, in the era that we're living in. So that's what I'm trying to write about. Is I'm not trying to suggest that it's uh, that I have any comprehensive answers. It's just one man's view of it. But I, I found it really to clarify my ideas. I mean, I found that as I write, this always happens. I've, you know, some of my ideas have clarified, some have been dropped. So I've been wrong about some things. I've discovered new things. It's always part of the process that's really interesting. I loved how when you use Robert Bly, which was a name I hadn't consulted in like 20 years, it was great, you know, mm. that you use his sibling, uh, his book to talk about, I, I think it's a factor of the machine, the beehive, the techno structure is the, and it's a lot of what I've written about at Front Porch Republic, all these things, including a work on Lewis Mumford in Egypt. I called it Mumford and Sons because Lewis Mumford mm. said, in any society that focuses on heliocentrism, sun worship, you create an anheap. But once you get back to the earth, what I would call a higher uh, geocentrism, that in an infinite universe, it's the center is where the observer is located, right? You take you take the Hubble telescope or the or the new telescope, and the the thing still processing all the data is eventually the human eye, which is made out of dirt, adama, and so forth, you know. But when we focus on one side of the equation, Lewis Mumford points out, you know, sun worship. It's always for building a beehive or an anti. And I just love how everybody thinks it's so. You know, we're so enlightened now that we know the sun is the center. We go, oh, God, mm. that's fun. In an infinite universe, this is crazy. But the other one is, uh, you know, you focusing on how the beehive wants to keep us in adolescence. And that's something I'm working on all the time is that, yeah. you know, there's we're seeking the higher what I would call, you know, Paul Ricoeur would say the second naivete or the or the second childhood. But the way the worst being the corruption of the best. The way right now it's playing into like a form of neoteny, keeping us all in adolescent versions of ourselves. And I make a point that modern science does this better than anything. You know, that when you see yourself as opposed to both sides of the equation, that in comparison with the smallest thing I know, I'm huge. But in, if I put myself in comparison with outer space, I'm small. Oh, that's the human imagination. Jonathan Swift saw it on two different islands. But in when modernity wants to focus on one side of the equation that Paul Kings North is a tiny speck of cosmic dust, totally insignificant, that that leads to infant. That's how an adolescent thinks. That's just how an adolescent thinks. And we're mm -hmm. caught in neotenous adolescence and so forth. And I was just, I was so tickled to see that you play with that theme. And I can't thank you enough for that. Because I think it's unheralded. You know, talk to any girl on this campus right outside my window and they're going to graduate. And they will have not had a date. And they'll say, you know, the fact that you didn't have a date, does that make you sad? Yeah, kind of. But it's that, that I've never met a grown up. I've never met a grown up man you know, on campus. You yeah. know, this so, you know, with this is three men talking. But if you talk to all of womankind around the Western world, they're going to say the fact that men are not passing into maturity is the single biggest issue of our time. You know, I think it's a really big. I think it's very interesting. This it's like the the society that we're in, this machine consumer society, it has to keep us teenage. Actually, restless, really restless. Yeah, you've yeah, probably yeah. seen all this. You've probably seen all this stuff about Andrew Tate all over the internet. About, you know, yeah, this, yeah, yeah, this, yeah, this yeah. And I don't know, don't know much about him. I only know what I've seen in the news. But he seems to me to be the perfect symbol of this you know i mean he he's he's selling people a 17 year old boy's fantasy right 
You can have any car oh, you want. You can have any car you want. Look at my collection of swords. Look how much money I've got. You know, it's like the sort of thing that I found amazing when I was like sixteen. Like, wouldn't that be cool? <laughs> look at my collection yeah, of swords. Yeah, that was so cool. Look, I've got a sword and a fast car and all the good blah. <laughs> and, and, and that's being sold. That's being it's sold really as masculinity. Good. And that's not yeah, masculinity. Yeah, yeah. That's silly teenage yeah, machismo. Yeah. And that's it if is. people are being attracted to that. It's because, as you say, where, where, where have the fathers gone? I mean, this is what Robert Bly yeah. talked about all the time. Where have the fathers gone? And the mothers, to maybe a lesser degree, but still that as well. We've, we're keeping ourselves in this state of adolescence because that's how we best become consumers. You know, we just, yeah. we're yeah. sexual beings forever. We never mature. We never go through, never become the old. The left wants you to be wedded wide. to the nation state. The right wants you to be wedded to the market, right? Well, and and always be. Yeah. So, and so now just, the, the, the machine's trying to cancel motherhood, motherhood right? Yeah. Sorry? The machine's trying to cancel motherhood as we yeah. speak. Right? Well, there is no motherhood anymore because there's no mother anymore, because there's right. no father anymore, because there's no man or woman anymore, because we're all becoming these neutral beings in the age of the machine. And if you want to have children, well, uh, there'll be an artificial womb, which will be able to do yeah. that for you soon enough. You don't need motherhood anymore. Motherhood right. is yeah. not profitable. Fa mm -hmm. Fatherhood is not profitable. Family is not profitable. Home is not profitable. Everybody has to become a consumer, a, a teenager forever, endlessly buying things, endlessly spinning around the sun, wanting sexual pleasure till they're 90, you know, the rest of it. And this is what I was saying earlier. I think if, you know, true, true religion is a threat to that. It's mm -hmm. a radical threat mm -hmm. to that. True Christianity is a radical threat to that worldview, which is why it's actually okay, so, yeah. is the antidote. Yeah. We uh, so brilliantly said, again, like you're doing, you're doing a great thing. I, where is that Front Porch Republic convention? I'll, I think I'll link this interview to Front Porch. Where well, is that being I'm, hosted? Which city again? Uh, that okay. is a very good question because I'm afraid to say it's up in the air because uh, until your country lifts its vaccine mandate, I'm not allowed in as an unvaccinated danger to the Republic. Now, power, my brother. Yeah. yeah I'm hoping that one. common sense will prevail in your Congress and hopefully I'll be able to come over in October. But I'm not God. exactly sure it is yet, so we'll see. Good for you. Yeah, it's funny. I, I flew to Italy. They weren't doing anything. And I flew back. And again, non-Americans. I forgot. You would have to yeah, I don't think anyone's doing anything now except you guys. So, you know, you're, you're well protected from the from the dangerous God, people. God. Uh, my apologies. My apologies. Well, we well, hope to uh, we hope to have you on again sometime. Again, you're uh, you're singular and your work is so needed and can't thank you enough. And um, uh, again, look for his work. You know, hope, I think at the Abbey of Misrule, you'll see links to the books and, you know, Google his name. And uh, we hope to have Paul Kingsnorth on again. Thank you for all you're doing. And thanks, everybody, for listening to the Regeneration podcast. We'll see yeah. everybody. No, thank you, guys. Uh, it's been really good. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Paul.